Hey, you're listening to Distributed Dialogues, a collaborative show between the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network and Distributed Magazine. My name is Rick. And I'm Dave. And in each episode, we'll introduce you to the people who are using blockchain technology to change the way we interact with the world around us. What are the risks and rewards of government involvement in the cryptocurrency space? For enterprises, there are little to no regulatory hurdles. They essentially use blockchain technology as a new type of data system. On the other hand, the government's intended role has been to prevent nefarious activity, scams, and any kind of pandemic economic crises. The ongoing point of contention here is assessing what level of involvement the state and its laws should have in open source projects. And if there is needed government input, would this type of involvement prevent decentralization? In this episode, we will hear from two current and former government employees who act as significant points of contact between the cryptocurrency community and their respective governments, the United States and Taiwan. In between, we talk with Konstantin Richter in a sponsored interview about his company Blockdaemon, which helps new companies build decentralized infrastructures by offering nodes as a service. We speak first with John Collins, a public administrator who has served at both the state and federal levels of American government. Apart from a passion for cryptocurrency in his home state of Delaware, Collins is a fellow at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center and was previously head of policy at Coinbase. So um, I wanted to sort of kick off um, and ask you about how you first got in this space and a little bit more about your background, if you wouldn't mind telling us about that. Sure. So I started my career on the U.S. Senate Homeland Security Committee uh, and so worked as a senior advisor there. Did a bunch of different things, but um, special projects and investigations was my main deal. And so uh, in 2013, we started a really holistic look at Bitcoin um, and talked to folks in the industry, talked to folks in government, law enforcement, and did a real deep dive into sort of what were the risks perhaps of this, you know, emerging technology, but also, you know, what are the opportunities that might be out there and how can government sort of mitigate the risks, but also nurture innovation. And so we had the first hearing uh, on Bitcoin back in 2013. Um, A little bit after that, I had the opportunity to go work for Coinbase. Uh, where I did policy and external affairs work for them. Um, and then since that time, have just um, spent my time uh, in the space working with, with companies and financial institutions, uh, mostly around policy um, globally as well as in the U.S. Um, as, as everyone knows, it's the regulatory piece of this is becoming increasingly important, I think, to companies and to, to investors. So uh, that's what I spend most of my time on. And remind me the year you said the first hearing on Bitcoin was? 2013. 2013. Mm-hmm. So I think that feels like eons in this sort of space in terms of progress and what, the, what what's happening. So can you, I know you're not directly in government anymore, but can you tell me how, you know, senators and politicians are thinking differently about the technology since that time? I think if you look back then, you know, obviously it's five years in crypto is like 35 years or more in, in I guess, normal years. But... Uh, and, you know, at the time, we were talking about it more as a decentralized visa, right? I mean, it was like a payment system for the world. And obviously, that is still very much a use case, and there are people that are working on on that aspect of the technology. But it's become so much more, right? I mean, it's it's become now, um, you know, a fascination of, of all industries in terms of how they can uh, potentially use blockchain technology to, you know, improve their... Um, uh, you know, record systems of all different types. It's become um, a place where you can uh, have crypto kitties. Like, you know, we would have never thought of like non-fungible tokens or digital collectibles, you know, five years ago. That just wasn't on the... But I, but I would think, I, what I would say is that the, the education level <clears throat> among some aspects of government, I don't think the, the, the community gives government enough credit at times for how much um, they actually do know and do follow, not only sort of the tech piece, but I think the community stuff that's happening. Um, there's always more work to do, I think, especially in Congress. But, you know, you talk to folks at the, at the White House or Treasury or the SEC or CFTC um, and some, some um, staff members on the Hill, very, very, very smart on this stuff. Um, but, you know, the, the work that, that I think Coin Center and other folks like that continue to do is, is, um, has led us to that point, frankly. And, um, you know, there's always more to do. This is a very broad question, sure. so take it whatever way you'd like. But what do you think the role of government is in interacting with blockchain or crypto technology? 
So I think if you look at the, you know, let's just set a, se separate the enterprise piece from the, um, you know, the open protocol stuff, right? To just really simplify it. You know, for all intents and purposes and from all the analysis that's been done, for the most part, enterprise seems like they can do what they want to do using blockchain technology. Like, it, it's really just sort of a new kind of system, right? For the open protocol stuff, the role of government is <clears throat> ultimately, and, and let's just focus on the financial regulators, you know, they have three main mandates. One is just make sure the financial system isn't used for like criminal actors, right? So terrorist financing, money laundering, that sort of thing. The second is protect consumers from just outright scammers. And then the third piece is just make sure that it stays stable, right? So that we don't have like what happened in 2000, um, 2007 again. Um, so that's what the financial regulators are, are focusing on. I mean, my, my position has always been, and it's the same now as it was when I was in government, is that government does have a role to do all those three things, and it should. In the industry, if it wants to have investor and consumer confidence, should also want to do those three things and help government do it. But at the same time, it's the government's role to uh, steer the boat, not row the boat. And so what they should focus on is, um, again, allowing sort of that, that nurturing environment for innovation. Um, and I think they have. And I, and I actually think they have for the most part. Yeah, and related to that, I know you've advocated for sort of like a phrase change instead of regulatory sandbox. You said regulatory greenhouse, yeah. which provides it a little bit more of like an adult reading, a maturity to the space um, that it kind of deserves. Can you further explain your sort of vision for a regulatory greenhouse and then how might the public best interact with companies in that space. Yeah, so so this is like my own personal, um, uh, because I have no life, I guess, and I'm like a, <laughs> a huge nerd. Um, I, you know, I, I think regulatory sandboxes solve a major, major problem in financial technology development broadly, which is it aims to relieve the tension between what you see in regular technology development, which is, you know, very iterative and like move fast and break things, which like works if it's a photo sharing app, doesn't really work if you're like creating an internet bank, right? I mean, you just don't, because if people's money goes, that's a problem. So, you know, the UK started this concept of regulatory sandbox to sort of um, allow companies who have innovative solutions to come into a safe space, work with regulators, and craft tests that are small enough to fail. Um, the UK has been wildly successful. Other countries have copied it. The US has been slow to do that, although this week um, the CFPB actually announced that a guy named Paul Watkins, who uh, was uh, in the Arizona Attorney General's office, is now going to be um, putting together the CFPB's new Office of Innovation. And I think one of his mandates is going to be, how can we create a federal sandbox? Um, and I think that's that, that if we have that sort of construct here in the US, I think it's great for all kinds of fintech companies, but especially, I think, I think Bitcoin and, and crypto companies, because the solutions are so novel and so nascent, and in some cases don't really fit into the constructs that we've created so far in the vast financial regulatory structure. Yeah. Because of the creepiness of the internet, I'm sorry, I do know yeah. you have a long history in Delaware. Mm -hmm. So can you explain to me, is Delaware doing anything unique uh, in regards to what you just spoke about? Yeah, so Delaware is my home. Uh, and uh, that is like, you know, it's like Bitcoin in Delaware and I have a dog and those are like the three things that I, <laughs> I focus my life on. So it's really exciting. But um, no, Delaware is, so Delaware, um, a lot of folks are familiar with the Delaware Blockchain Initiative, um, which was one of the first states to really modernize some of the, the statutes and law and, and, and try to push the state to start thinking about, okay, how might we use this technology in, in various ways to improve services for, for citizens. That's continuing, I think. They just announced this week that there's a new proof of concept that they're launching in October with IBM, um, kind of furthering that initiative. Um, but, but no, I mean, I, look, I, I think Delaware is in particular a, um, uh, a unique laboratory of democracy as a small state and as one that's pretty nimble. Um, and it's been on the forefront of a lot of different financial services innovations back in the 80s with credit card banks. And you know, you look at sort of how they've become the home of corporations. Um, so I would love to see them do that again. And so I, I founded a small nonprofit in the state with a colleague of mine, Megan Wallace, who used to work for our last governor, called the First State FinTech Lab. And, and we work on work with folks in the business community and in government in Delaware around how do we foster um, the FinTech ecosystem there. Wonderful. That's good to hear. I, I'm going to shift the conversation just a little bit um, to another conversation you had actually with the Delaware Business Times. Um, where you made the point that a lot of underserved populations, especially minorities, uh, women, et cetera, are utilizing 
um, fintech resources at a very high rate, especially in comparison to traditional financial institutions and their usage of those. Um, and it's increasing accessibility um, to financial resources for them uh, and access to capital, things like that. What kind of impact do you think that crypto um, and other similar technologies will have on these minority or underserved populations in the long term? So I think, you know, the reason that I was interested in Bitcoin from the very beginning was not necessarily because I wanted to take down the Federal Reserve, but, but, but it was because I thought that any time you have an open network that people can build stuff on, it's going to be cool. And it's going to be, um, you know, innovation is going to come from that and it's going to be changing. So um, that was the reason I was fascinated from the beginning. I think... If you look at the study that I talk about in, in that particular interview, it was actually uh, in part derived from some PayPal uh, data and some small loan data. And basically all it shows is like, look, you know, especially in underserved communities or minority communities, you know, people that have not been traditionally well served by the financial services community, um, they will access financial services via applications on their phone or on the internet um, in part because they don't fear the rejection of going to a bank in person. Um, and so, you know, what does that mean? You know, and I don't have the answer. I mean, I think about it a lot, but, but it, it seems to me that one of the answers is obviously access and convenience. Um, and I think certainly the kind of open protocols and like democratization of finance that I think most of the, the companies you talk to that are the most successful in the crypto space are really focused on, that's got to be a part of the solution. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as you talk to developers and, and, and um, investors, in this sort of next, I think, wave of crypto development, the focus has got to be on UX, right? It's got to be on the convenience of accessing these things in a way that like normal people can. So, so I'm excited about um, I'm excited about that. But, but absolutely, I don't think look, I don't think crypto is the end all be all. But I don't think one technology is. I think it's going to be all of these things working together. And you know, heck, if we can provide capital to people that you know for generations have not felt comfortable getting access or been totally unable to then that's a major major win for for everybody so that's that's one of the things that i that i i try to focus my time on too Talk to us a little bit more, like you said, of your sort of initial interest in crypto because I think we've had conversations with people throughout the conference um, that show a little bit of frustration, at least they, they say about, you know, you can explain crypto to someone that doesn't know it, and you can talk about the, you know, technical aspects of a digital currency and a store of value, but it sort of misses the more poetic or groundbreaking aspects of immutability and a decentralized sort of um, currency and the things that come along with all of that. So can you talk about um, maybe your initial interest in it that seems to be deeper than just, you know, Bitcoin as a new digital currency? Yeah, I mean, I didn't get into it for political reasons, right? I mean, and, and, and it's nothing against, it's just everyone comes at it from a, from a different vantage point. You know, for me, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So, like, you know, I spent a lot of time on AOL, right? I spent a lot of time, um, you know, on Napster downloading music illegally and, and other sorts of things. So, you know, when, when I, so I understood, and I'm not, a, I'm not like, in, you know, I'm not a programmer. I'm not sort of a technical guy at all. But what I did appreciate and understand, again, was was the distributed, you know, bum bum, uh, nature of the network, the open nature of the network, and the peer-to-peer -peer nature of the network, right? And so that was what was exciting to me. And, you know, having that ability to, um, you know, conduct transactions person-to-person -person without an intermediary, the ability to have all kinds of different people building all kinds of different things permissionless, um, that was really exciting to me, and it was clear to me that it was going to happen, right? Whatever that happening is going to be and whatever size that's going to be, I wasn't sure. Frankly, still I'm not. Um, but to me, it was very clear that, that um, it was something worth paying attention to, and from the government's perspective, you know, that we get out in front of it. You know, from, from not only that risk part, you know, all of the criminal pieces that, that obviously government is, is um, always concerned about, but the innovation part, you know, if this is going to be the next generation of the internet, well, like, what the heck are we doing to, to help these entrepreneurs build on this and make sure that the U.S. is, is, a, is a leader in it? Yeah, I said, you said, um, you know, you didn't get into it for political reasons necessarily, but I think, you know, some people do. Um, and, you know, an argument can be made that some fintech or crypto communities have sort of increased you know, quote-unquote, online tribalism, um, in a sense, you know, people connecting political, social, moral beliefs 
um, to some crypto products and creating communities around that. Um, and, you know, that could, in some regards, cause like a, a little bit of social fracturing um, and group think. Do you think there are any major downsides or cautions uh, to be made aware of concerning the way in which crypto communities have developed or the sort of public usage of them? Yeah, I mean, look, Twitter's a hellhole. I think everybody knows that Twitter is a hellhole, you know, but nightmares are dreams too. And so we, we, you know, I get the best information from Twitter, crypto Twitter, and I get the worst information from crypto Twitter. And I see the best people that I've ever met in crypto on Twitter and the worst people I've ever met in crypto on Twitter. So it, it's, and, and certainly it is not just crypto that has this online tribalism happening. I mean, you know, I, I've obviously started my career in politics, so, you know, I'll just leave that be, you know, everybody witnesses what, what's happening on, on these networks. Um, you know, what I would say is that, like, look, I, I don't know how social media resolves itself. And we may look back 25 years from now and be like, look at Twitter like we look at cigarettes today. But, um, but I do think that from a reputational standpoint, and this kind of goes back to what I was talking about before in, in terms of government specifically, you know, people see this stuff. Like, these are not, I think at times people have these arguments in these, debates and, 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 and these kerfuffles, and they think that it is just within the family. And it's not. People pay attention to this stuff. And it doesn't necessarily, when you're talking about sort of recreating the financial system and you see the dumb fights happening, um, seemingly over very little at times, it doesn't give a lot of confidence to the persons that you may want to convince of the fact that this is good, right? So so I think that should be on the minds of folks um, who are contributing to this. And, it, and it's tough because people have invested in, you know, almost their entire lives in, in some cases um, to this technology and the development of it and a lot of capital and, and a lot of energy. So it's difficult to, to I think, um, sometimes separate that. But I think people need to be aware that, you know, there are people watching and it's not giving a whole lot of confidence at times. Um, to those that I think we would like to give confidence to. Talking about like instilling confidence and I guess teaching, um, how do you approach as someone who's probably had to be, you know, the explainer and the sort of arbiter, arbiter for this community many times to people that might not be too familiar with it, how do you approach those initial conversations um, with people that are looking to get, get into it or are interested but, you know, have really no technical uh, background or understanding of it? Yeah, so I think you know one of the things that I've that I've noticed, and this has been over the past few years, you know, especially when I started at Coinbase, and I'd go out and talk to, you know, any level of of politician or staffer or or, or other sort of external person, you know, I had to spend a lot of time explaining what blockchain was and like what a miner is and and all of that stuff, right? And then I would talk about what Bitcoin was, and then maybe I have like three minutes to talk about what Coinbase was. Um, and so that has changed. I think in part because people do actually understand even at just like a base level what blockchain is, or maybe they've just heard it enough now that they think they do, which I don't know if that's more dangerous or not. But um, so I think you have to spend less time on that. But I do think um, I do think when you're approaching some of these conversations, the thing that I find the most useful to people is kind of explaining, okay, what are, who are the actors in this space? Because I, I think, you know, look, you know, I've, we all here probably have spent, you know, combined, you know, 20 plus years in this space following it, right? Um, nearly every day. I still have difficulty keeping track of everything happening and all of the different players and what they're doing. Um, so I try to, try to explain sort of, okay, well, you know, these are exchanges. Like, this is what exchanges do. They make a lot of money. This is where, like, a lot of the attention is. This is why. You know, this is what Lightning is. This is what Chainalysis is. This is what, you know, XYZ company. And I think when you can start breaking it down by sort of industry sector, then they're like, oh, this is not just, like, some dudes in a basement, like, you know, uh, sending money to some dark net marketplace. Like, this is an actual um, kind of growing industry. So I find that's actually really helpful. And, and it's, it's pretty exciting when you kind of go down the list of, of all of the developments that are happening in the space. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Berkman Klein Center, uh, where you're working right now? So, uh, yeah, so the Berkman Klein Center uh, is... The Brooklyn Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard, uh, where I'm an affiliate, and I'm a part of a group there, uh, the Digital Finance Initiative. So 
you know, traditionally the Berkman Klein Center has been focused on the Internet's role in society, right, and how both affect one another um, and the development of one another. You know, obviously with the advent of financial technology applications, mostly because of mobile, it's opening up all kinds of new um, questions and new behaviors. You know, I don't know if you saw the Venmo bot that somebody put on Twitter yesterday. You know, obviously crypto is a part of that, but there's a lot happening in the quote-unquote fintech space. So what we work on is is um, exploring that, trying to work especially with, you know, lawyers and regulators and, you know, thinkers and academics and policymakers around how do we think about regulation in the, the, the sense of, you know, how this technology is developing out. So regulatory sandboxes are a big piece of that. You know, we're trying to develop sort of principles that regulators can, you know, view uh, any kind of fintech development through as it as they approach it um, globally. So you know, from a state representative to someone at the Basel Committee. So that's something that 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 I work and spend a lot of time on. And then last week uh, we launched FS Vector, which is um, a new advisory firm that um, is founded by Raj Date, who is former deputy director of the CFPB. Um, and then John Betcha, who was employee number one at Circle um, and was their general counsel and, and chief compliance officer. And so I've joined as a founding partner. And, you know, we're focused on working with all types of companies, including crypto companies, um, who are trying to deal with regulatory and compliance issues. Um, I think from John and, you know, from my background at Coinbase and from John's at Circle, you know, we're really especially focused, I think, on startups that are trying to solve these problems and work with them to, to you know, further financial technology development, and, and um, we're really excited. Thank you so much for your time and speaking with us today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. As public understanding of crypto and blockchain has been increasing in recent months and years, more and more enterprises, both new and old, have looked for ways their work might intersect with this powerful technology. But many of these businesses need a guiding hand when entering the blockchain tech space. Enter Blockdaemon. Blockdaemon is a nodes-as-a-service platform that empowers businesses to simply and efficiently manage blockchain applications. Tatiana Moroz, host of The Tatiana Show, joins us in talking with Block Damon CEO, Constantine Richter. A veteran in the tech space, Constantine speaks with us in a sponsored interview about how his company is bringing the power of the blockchain to businesses. Hey everybody, this is Tatiana Moroz and I'm here with Distributed Dialogues talking with my friend Constantine Richter from Block Damon. Nice to see you again. Very nice to see you again. I'm glad we're here uh, at Distributed again. Let me ask you, what moment convinced you that blockchain tech was a groundbreaking development and you had to be a part of the community working with it? Because mm. you weren't obviously always doing this, so tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, no, great question. And uh, and so I've been an entrepreneur and I worked in like network strategy and stuff all my life. I'm originally from Germany and I worked at Deutsche Telekom back in the day. And so I've always been interested in uh, data hierarchies and architecture. And I've been a startup entrepreneur in the SaaS B2B space, so software as a service, business to business in the media, large file file management systems for a while and had a couple of exits and then stumbled into blockchain fairly accidentally outside of you know buying Bitcoin fairly early, um, luckily. Um, not too much that I unfortunately can stop working, but uh, enough to get excited about it. Um, I uh, joined an advisory board of a company called Gem, gem.co, which was at the time one of the earlier enterprise-centric platforms um, and in 2015 and started working with Micah Winkelspecht who's the CEO and is a dear friend of mine now and I uh, helped him you know, fairly actively structure the company and the business strategy around it and looking at you know what use cases can enterprises use for blockchain and that's when I really started to learn more in-depth technically about what it could be and I also saw, so I, I got convinced about the potential, but I also saw very clearly the limitations of the tech at the time mm -hmm. to be even remotely applicable to the enterprise. So I experienced two things at GEM. So I saw the vast interest and the potential of what blockchains could deliver, and I also saw the long road ahead. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's really when I made a conscious decision at the time um, as an advisor who was brought on by a VC to help Micah um, to actually pivot my career into 
um, uh, something as specific as blockchain. And so I've since been engaged in a you know handful of different companies that I helped start and protocols and obviously and then started Blockdaemon uh, a year ago. But I've been sort of frantically passionate about it for like the last three, three and a half years. Excellent. Thank you for, for telling us. Um, so can you explain the concept of Node as a service and how Blockdaemon offers it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great question. And so first off, Nodes of a Service was a little bit of a marketing term. We were trying to steer away from blockchain as a service mm -hmm. because that's a term occupied by the IBMs, Oracles, Azures and stuff of, of, of this place. So Nodes as a Service is really, um, for us, our try to express that we're a decentralization service provider, meaning that we make it easy for Nodes to be deployed for any type of network. And part of the blockchain ethos is that you want widely distributed networks. You want networks that are uh, not controlled by one or two or three of the big mining companies. You want people to deploy Nodes easily, connect to your network, and have distribution, right? And so, and that was... Um, is really in essence what we do. And so when you talk about decentralization, there's three layers on it, and I'm not going to get too technical, but we're in the first one, which is nodes and infrastructure. And then on top of that, you have the protocols and their consensus mechanisms, et cetera, et cetera, and then you have the applications. And so on the bottom, it's in the interest, I think, in, for every blockchain to make it very easy for somebody to set up a node and connect to the network. And that's really ultimately what we do, and that's when we say nodes as a service, meaning we charge per node. So we work with all the major protocols and we allow like a Bitcoin node cost $14.99 a month. And, you know, that's sort of our monthly revenue model um, that's uh, implicit uh, in that statement. Can you give me an example of a type of company that would use Blockdaemon? Why would they need help building an infrastructure of different types of nodes that would be compatible with multiple blockchains? Why would that be helpful for them? Mm, you know, so um, great question. And maybe one way to think about it is... Right now, we're providing service and a network management tool for individual blockchains. So let's say we just uh, today announced Stellar and Quorum. So one of our customers is Goldcoin. It's, it's a pure Quorum network, but um, they are running a stable token, and they need 60 node validators to operate nodes and validate transactions that are not them, not the people who own the gold coin, the foundation, right? And so they have a mainnet, and now all these banks and commodity traders who are in the gold business need to spin up a node connected to the network to validate transactions. Now, none of those people know how to do that. Um, Goldcoin is a very specific quorum integration, and Goldcoin doesn't have a team of 50 DevOps managers who can go to all these partners and actually configure a node, deploy a network, and then host it and manage it and manage all the you know, subsequent uh, updates. And so we build a tool for them where um, we, people can just, you know, it, it's a closed backend that somebody needs a password to, they can sign on and then they click a button, connect a gold node, and, you know, they can run it and operate it. And so that's really the use case is um, to holistically uh, manage an individual blockchain network. So. You don't need, you don't run the nodes like, oh, I, you know, you don't have nodes of different protocols connected to each other, um, but you need to manage the performance of the overall network. Another good example would be something like EOS, you know, 21 validator nodes, all of them on Amazon, um, you know, it's not a very decentralized network. Those companies benefit from a service like ours because we allow them to holistically manage all the nodes, make sure that they're distributed across Amazon, Google, Azure, our own infrastructure, so you eliminate single point of failures. So decentralization is a very practical term, and it means, again, making it easy for people to connect a node and to a network and then to distribute this, these nodes on infrastructures around the world uh, not just on Amazon, not just on Google, not just on Azure, um, but on all of them in an equal manner. And so that's, those are our customers. Um, some big protocols, Aon is a customer, uh, Matt Network is a customer. Um, we're currently selling more network management solutions than we can uh, actually launch. Every company that has a um, native token and needs anyone else but themselves to run nodes ultimately needs a solution like ours in order to ensure that there is network integrity. Because even if you look at network integrity for Bitcoin and Ethereum, it's not great. And so that's why solutions like ours now become more and more fashionable, um, because people want to make sure that it's truly decentralized. And so how do I do that completely for a network? How do I see every node in the world on a map and who runs it and, and where you know, what infrastructure is on to eliminate um, all those potential uh, fault mechanisms? Wow, it sounds like you guys are keeping really busy over there. Yeah. Um, so one of the themes of this conference is East meets West, mm -hmm. with both Eastern and Western blockchain companies coming together in a shared space. 
What do you think people have to gain from establishing more global relations around their businesses? And what do you think you'll be taking home from this conference? I mean, you know, blockchain by definition is borderless. So I think uh, obviously the largest markets uh, for us are in Asia. Um, I think the, the uh, you know, it's just obviously the market with the most rigorous capital allocation and innovation, actually. And so more and more of our uh, business gets pulled out there. Um, and so, you know, I think it's fantastic. Um, we have a bunch of investors we're talking to also in Asia. And so for me, it's mainly um, uh, networking, gaining a little bit of uh, recognition also in Asia. We're fairly well known now in sort of America and sort of in the B2B space, but not very well known in the sort of, you know, sort of wider world of uh, blockchain, specifically in Asia, and it's a market we're super excited about. So we're trying to get in bed with some of the big miners and stuff to make sure that they start using our software also to manage the distributions of their nodes. And so, you know, mostly connection and awareness. Excellent. Well, uh, where can people catch up with you if they want to find out more? Uh, so best uh, place, our website, blockdaemon or demon.com, whatever you prefer. Um, we can be demonic or demonic. Um, and so the I keep a blog there that's normally fairly current. I need to write a new blog post. Uh, I do it every two, three weeks. And, uh, and then there's also a chat box that I get directly and the contact info and all that type of stuff. So we try to be as open. We run a public Slack channel as well for anyone who has questions around physical deployments that are a little more technical. So uh, we're a developer tool. If you're a developer looking for easy ways to help you manage your blockchain, then hit us up, uh, blockdemon.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time. Always great to see you. Thank you so much. Lastly, we got a chance to speak with an ever-moving target. He's a man on the move. He's a crypto congressman. He's Jason Shi. Jason is legislator at large in the Taiwanese parliament and an ardent supporter of technology. He hopes to see Taiwan embrace a very crypto-focused future, both now and in the years to come. So uh, my name is Jason Shi. I am a legislator and a member of parliament from Taiwan. And I was a technology entrepreneur before joining Parliament. I ran uh, technology startups and organized conferences. And most recently, I ran uh, TEDx Taipei as a curator and organizer from 2009 and 2016. And I served as a senior ambassador in Asia uh, since 2011. And I was nominated as a, a large uh, legislator uh, in 2016 to manage technology uh, legislations and then to remove legal barriers for uh, innovations. Yeah, so tied to your uh, legislative work with technology, you know, everybody's heard your nickname, it seems, which is the Crypto Congressman. Can you tell us a little bit about the story behind that name and then how you got into crypto? Yeah, definitely. So I started paying attention to Bitcoin. Actually, in 2009, when Satoshi's white paper first came out, and I was really interested to understand, you know, financial system in the wake of the uh, uh, financial crash uh, following Lehman Brothers and some mortgage crime. At the time, I realized what Bitcoin has promised for a peer-to-peer transaction network uh, is going to be a, a game-changing or revolutionary for the future um, use case and implementations across different sectors. And came in 2017, when, after I became a legislator, on September, 2000, uh, September 4th, 2017, uh, China banned ICO. And during that same week, I held a uh, public hearing with Taiwan's prime minister and asked for his support on uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain. And I also essentially asked the uh, executive branch to take a light touch approach on the uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain. And ever since then, I became sort of the, uh, the face of the uh, reg regulatory change in this space. And then I got, got to become friends with uh, Vitalik Buterin the co-founder of Ethereum, and I invited him to visit me in the legislature, and 
and we bonded. And then he started calling me Crypto Congressman. So now this this nickname sort of start traveling and uh, kind of uh, go viral. And people love this nickname so much. Uh, I have to, you know, request the uh, official approval to print the crypto congressman on my parliamentary business card. And finally, I got the approval, and now I have the mandate, uh, the official crypto congressman now uh, from Taiwan. Yeah, it's probably pretty rare to have a government official nickname. I think you're probably one of the very few people around the world to have that. So. Um, and it seems like you were talking about how you were sort of sold on the idea of blockchain and crypto fairly early on. What are you doing in terms of your work as a legislature, uh, legislator, excuse me, of showing that interest to the general public? How are you making people in Taiwan that might not have a deep understanding of it see the promise of what blockchain and crypto has to offer? So basically, there are several layers to this. One is on the legislation and regulation side. I advocate for light touch reg, uh, legislation and too early regulation is bad regulation. So I form a self-regulatory organization and to allow the industries to self-regulate and then to work with the government and the regulators to understand uh, the, uh, the, the development of technology and the ecosystem. And I think it's also important that the government evolves as the technology evolves. Uh, because for crypto and the blockchain, it's so new. Uh, very few governments around the world, in fact, no government around the world yet understand what it is or its future uh, implement, uh, implementations to the social economic aspect. So I think it's important to maintain a uh, open-mindedness or open-minded attitude towards this industry. And secondly, I believe it's important to support the good actors and uh, also to make sure that the industry come together to to uh, uh, self-regulate uh, and then provide the uh, uh, users with the sufficient and the correct uh, knowledge behind this. So my job is really to safeguard the consumer's interests and protect their data and to make sure that they are fully informed when they get into the investment. And secondly, is to ensure that a, a sound and uh, open uh, regulatory environment is encouraged and, and to, to safeguard the uh, industry and also to, to make sure that enough of room is given for innovation. Yeah, and you've, you've talked about governments needing to evolve and also ability to regulate in smaller governments. And you said positioning Taiwan as a country where it can be the sort of leader of the technological landscape because of its size and leveraging that. But how do you yourself keep abreast of all the technological developments that are coming at such a rapid rate? How do you sort of stay on top of it um, and encourage others to do so as well? Yeah, I want uh, to talk about the, uh, the country's positioning uh, for a bit. Uh, so basically, the nature of the uh, blockchain technology is decentralized uh, ledger technology, and it's basically to rewrite the uh, social contract, if you will, or to reestablish the trust-based system, or, or to build a trustless um, a mechanism and that can uh, uh, increase the interoperability uh, across different sectors. Now, for countries like, you know, big countries like U.S. Or, or China, it's difficult for them to allocate or to uh, figure out a position or a niche for blockchain because it's all about control. You know, big countries are about AI, artificial intelligence. It's about data concentration. But smaller countries like Taiwan have the edge of driving this. And, and I believe um, the size matters uh, now and also the smaller size means faster speed and agility now taiwan has always been a strong builders in uh, software and hardware from the semiconductor era and uh, computer electronics era and so this this proves to be another opportunity for taiwan to assert its influence uh, to the world now back to your question how do we keep abreast of the technology change Okay, number one is I am now uh, 
uh, coming up with a, a set of policy programs to encourage more blockchain companies to cover Taiwan and to use Taiwan as what we call a, a tech hub for blockchain. We are now setting a, the very first blockchain cluster in New Taipei City, by which we are attracting 100 to 150 blockchain companies to, to set up their uh, technology or their R&D divisions uh, out of that cluster. And then uh, we are giving away research grants um, and visas, working visas for blockchain companies that are coming to Taiwan. And secondly, we are encouraging incentivized uh, investment schemes from the government. Uh, in other words, if you invest in $1, we will match $1.5 for your per-investments on blockchain uh, companies. So all of this is, you know, an effort basically to drive Taiwan to be the, the, the leading front in this technology. Um, and you probably argue, why not Singapore, why not Hong Kong or Japan? Um, now, Taiwan is a much more flexible place. Uh, we have a lot of technology talent, and we also have a very solid industry base uh, to be experimented on with blockchain. So, um, so I think there's a lot of uh, advantage as to uh, why Taiwan. Yeah. Does the I know you have to deal with a lot as the sort of technologically inclined legislator. Does it ever become a little bit overwhelming to try and keep up with everything or manage all the interactions between the different technologies? How do you you know manage all those relationships and developments under your wheelhouse? Yeah, so you know it's. It's not that different, you know, being a legislator versus being an entrepreneur. I think I apply the same rigor and the same grit that when I was running my own business and now being a, a kind of entrepreneurial legislator, if you will. And I think a lot of it has to do with talking with the smart people, surrounding myself with like really intelligent people. And uh, I learn by talking with the people who are in the industry who are doing great stuff in the industry. For example, I, I talk to Vitalik all the time. And then if I run into a situation, I, uh, whether it's in the legislative uh, side of things or on the actual business side of things, I would always consult kind of like my own brain trust. And I think in a way that as a lawmaker and also someone from technology sector, you have to form your unique opinion because you also have to convince your colleagues to support you because one legislator cannot finish or complete the uh, the legislation so you have you always have to hustle or just to sell your ideas to other legislators so all the things that can require uh, mobilizing and uh, multi-stakeholders and also engage in uh, sort of uh, uh, mutually beneficial um, uh, conversations and and I think just allow the uh, the, the the legislative uh, branch to understand the the technology itself is neutral, but it's the people who are behind it that are that can make it good or bad. So I think uh, uh, that's kind of my approach. Yeah, and talking about those interactions and those relationships, what do you think are some of the most important projects or things along those lines that you've sponsored or supported? Yeah, so one of the key ideas I have been kind of brainstorming with the people in the community is, uh, so we're trying to come out with the uh, digital identities uh, solutions for Taiwan. And it's basically, basically allow skilled workers to be able to become citizens of Taiwan by registering on the blockchain. So we come up with this Taiwan Global Digital ID. Uh, it's essentially very much similar to uh, Estonia's uh, e-residency system uh, or e-business system that uh, would allow and consolidate uh, data on this particular node and then uh, allow the global uh, citizens to register as a digital citizens for Taiwan. Um, so what, you know, uh, programs like this or, you know, for example, another thing is the Taiwan digital currency. We are studying the uh, possibility of uh, issuing a national digital currency that would basically alternate the way that the current currency functions. Uh, right now, our currency is very, you know, much packed 
against the U.S. dollars for export-driven uh, purpose. But now we have reserve to be used uh, for digital currencies and also used applied to the trade finance. So, you know, a lot of these things, I think it's an experiment, but I think we want to be sort of uh, cutting edge on, on this. Sure. And I mean, related to that and the projects that you're working on, like the digital ID system and the national currency, if you had to say in your mind, where do you think Taiwan will be in five years? And then if you're successful in all your efforts, what would an ideal Taiwan look like? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, by the way. Uh, so, so I have this vision to build Taiwan as a blockchain island and a crypto nation. By saying that, there are several things that need to be happen. Uh, number one is we need to rethink the, the concept of a nation. Uh, in the world of, of digital age or the uh, digital economy, uh, can we think a different, can we come up with a different concept of a nation? Uh, what if Taiwan become the, uh, the destination for world's mm -hmm. digital assets uh, trading and we can develop a new set of uh, economic system that can eventually benefit the uh, bottom rather than just benefit a few on the, on the very top. And secondly, I, I believe that we wanted to start engineer a system revamp by which I wrote this in the paper that uh, uh, 16 areas of different uh, sectors and categories can be implied, can be applied to blockchain. And this includes uh, agriculture, education, digital identities, uh, rights transfer, intellectual property, and uh, finance, uh, supply chain, and, and et cetera. So in a way that uh, we are trying to build this as a paradigm, and this is a completely new thing, and, and also to develop Taiwan to be known that can, uh, in the future, when people talk about uh, new technologies and new economic, social economic system that Taiwan can be the ground breaking place to experiment it. So that's, that's what I want to focus on. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're working sort of on the ground level of building out this future Taiwan that you see, what does it look like on a typical day for you? And what are the most difficult parts and what are the most rewarding parts of working on this sort of vision for the future? Oh my gosh! So the daily grinding is is like uh, I would say. You know, I wake up typically, you know, six a.m. and then you know uh, read all the news and uh, also engage in some chats with uh, people in the community. And then my start my office around eight, and then legislation and the hearings, and mostly just meeting with the. Uh, people in the in the community and to understand their thoughts on this issue and then uh, I have I would have a meeting with my uh, legislative assistance team and to check the uh, progress on the legislation drafting and etc and then you know I, 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 I host meetups with the developers and the students once once a month you know to I buy pizza for them that they can do the hackathon uh, on the, to help solve some social issues. So I guess it's, it's not that different than, you know, from being an entrepreneur, except as a politician, you, you sort of always have to compromise that things just can't move as fast as you th think it would be. You know, it, you know, with an entrepreneur, it's always make it or break it. But as a, as a politician, it's, it's like, you either wait or you do. So I always do and see what happens. And then I would readjust my temp, my, my rhythm and my pace and uh, just continue to do it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, and I'm wishing you best of luck on that grind. I'm going to kind of hand over a few questions to Dave, who's with me now. You're, a, by historical standards, a fairly unique government official in that you advocate for a decentralized currency that is not backed for by a government what reactions do you most often hear when uh, you express your views to a panel of your peers oh uh <laughs> you know i have to be honest most legislators are behind 
this issue and they, they either see things as binary uh, they don't look at what's underneath or the, what, what are the underlying implementations and i like to that we tend to live in in a way that's fear-based uh, or operated uh, operated on scarcity or the information uh, loss but i wanted to say that i think when you are in a position you can change things you should uh, steer the thinking towards polarities and uh, abundance and i think technology can make that happen and the way that technology is growing is exponential but the way the government or the laws are structured are linear so how do we bridge that gap i think we need more communication and i often talk to my peers in the legislature that you know it's important for them to play with technology rather than treat it as a, as a, as a monster that going to eat up the uh, the current world and i think since there's always already an elephant in the room you might as well live with it so it's always that kind of the hurdle that you have to overcome yeah but uh in a way that i think we need more engagement on both sides you know i'm a real type as you as, as you call it that we need more people from technology side to be in the government but we also need the government to be talking more with the technology people another thing i wanted to add to that is that I, I i am genuinely interested in you know how far would this go uh i, I want to say that uh you know for 30 years ago when tim berners lee created World Wide web he was envisioning a open fair just place to share uh information but today's web is the opposite of that uh it was concentrated on several big companies. Uh, blockchain sort of given uh, humanity a second chance to make this right. So I'm interested in, to continue developing this and then to help on the, on the regulation side and also to bridge the uh, communication with uh, technology to make this uh, right. Again, this has been Rick and Dave. Thanks for listening to this episode of Distributed Dialogues.